Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Welcome back to Book Shambles. Welcome back to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here, and yes, we are back with a whole bunch of new episodes of Book Shambles. Robin is back from his world tour with Professor Brian Cox. Josie is still on tour and heading up to the Edinburgh Festival with her new show, so... This series will have Robin and Josie back together as well as a few different special guest co-hosts along the way. And as always, we have a great lineup of guests coming your way. Before we get started, a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters. As always, Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network relies on your support to keep going and pay for studio costs and all that sort of stuff that goes with making a podcast and all the blogs and other stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. If you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. We've got lots of events coming up as well, which is another great way you can support what we do. Robin is at the Soho Theatre for the rest of this week, if you are listening to this episode on the day of release. We're going to be at the Latitude and the Blue Dot and the British Science Festival uh, coming up this summer and then September for the British Science Festival. Lots of different shows there. Robin is on tour with Chaos of Delight across the UK in uh, November this year. Go to the Cosmic Shambles website or Robin's website, robinintz.com, to check out all the dates for those. And lots of other exciting stuff to reveal to you in due course. So on to this first episode of the new series of Book Shambles recorded just this past Sunday live in the Elgar Room in the Cabaret Bar at the Royal Albert Hall with Robin and Josie and a very special guest, Mr Wendell Pierce, who you will know from The Wire and Treme and Jack Ryan and Selma and Malcolm X and a whole host of brilliant films and TV series, as well as you may have seen him recently uh, playing Willie Loman in... Death of a Salesman at the Young Vic. Uh, It's been a sold-out run, the most incredible reviews you've ever seen for a play in London. Uh, It's transferring to the West End in October. Tickets for that will go fast, so make sure you go online and get yourself some of those. It's at the Piccadilly Theatre, salesmanwestend.com, I believe, is the site for tickets for that. So we hope you enjoy this episode. We are delighted to be back. New episodes coming at you every week from now on. Here's Robin, Josie and Wendell. We haven't seen each other for three months, man. And we've literally... Because Josie got caught in traffic, so she's late. So we're seeing each other for the first time. You look fantastic. Thank you. I did... morning TV show this morning and they put fake eyelashes on me. I feel so pretty. So that's nice. And you, Robin, has been on tour with his other partner, Professor Brian Cox. The yeah, don't woo him. He's, oh, oh, everything's wonderful, right? 
And that was Do you know what's good. funny about him is uh, that he is very um, scientifically like kind of evidence-based, evidence-based, but he buys some right old rubbish that's meant to be rejuvenating skin cream. You know yeah, that yeah. bit where you go, someone can be tremendously evidence-based, but this is made out of goose liver and the, <laughs> and the hair of lemurs. And so, but there's no science. No, but I leave the science when it comes to skincare treatment. Yeah. And that is entirely true. But every day, Robin has I'm been I'm sure Brian is very happy you told everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, we're, we're going to start straight off. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming down. And you are having... Uh, an incredible run. For the, I, I don't know if any of you have been to see Death for so it's a Young Vic at the moment. It's, it's transferring in October. And uh, all the reviews I've seen have been five-star reviews. And yes. Willie Loman, I don't know, I'll start off just by talking a little bit about Death for Salesman, which is, is it, would you say that Willie Loman is kind of the 20th century Hamlet? That for actors, Absolutely. It is iconic. It is the American Hamlet. It, is, um, it has immediately become... Uh, uh, the high water mark of my career, oh, wow. um, uh, instantaneously. Uh, it is one of those uh, milestones that measures uh, your craft, your ability, uh, the trajectory of your career, and um, everything that you've learned uh, being put to use. And so, when you got when this first came up, I mean, you were saying that this is the first time, isn't it, that the Lohman family have ever been an African-American yes. family? Yes, well, no, it's, not the, it's not the first time. It's been done before, um, but completely just the Lohman family, before Charlie and Bernard and the women. Uh, um, it's not a spoiler alert, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> There's a clue, by the way, in the title, Death of a Salesman. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and just so you know, Godot doesn't turn up. Yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, um, peripheral uh, characters uh, made up the ensemble were also African-American in other interpretations. They did it at the Yale Repertory Theater. They did a colorblind casting uh, um, production of it here just last year uh, in the northern part of England and, um, and at the Guthrie in Minnesota. But this is the first time, it's historic because this is the first time just the, African, just the family, the Lohman family itself, is African-American, uh, and um, so it's historic. So a lot of pressure was on me, not only to play the role, because it's become this iconic thing of, you know, Lee J. Cobbs play the role, and uh, Dustin Hoffman, and Brian Dennehy, and Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman, and uh, uh, Anthony Scherr, you know, and Wendell Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was a, a pressure that, that can you live up to the... Uh, the, the the monumental task of playing Willie Loman, um, and then also being the first African American to play the role um, uh, at this level um, in London or New York, uh, any uh, successful commercial ventures, it was quite a. I felt a great deal of responsibility uh, not to screw it up. Do you, in, in terms of the impact, in terms of the change of what mm -hmm. you think that the audience see in in, in that story? Uh, the first thing uh, I. I Without, any, without being disparaging to the production that did it this way, I, I uh, am not a fan of a play, this particular play especially, doing colorblind casting. Uh, because the time and the place is so specific uh, and illuminates so much of uh, what uh, Arthur Miller was trying to say. Um, the specificity of us being an African-American family illuminates what is already there. 
we honor every theme and conflict and um, metaphor and message and moral that Mr. Miller wanted. We honor and meet those qualifications of what the play is. Then we illuminate it and take it to another level, adding a variable that brings even more light and understanding to what he was trying to say of a man losing his way because he wants so much for his son and for his family, how the individual is lost at the expense of some sort of corporate um, idea that uh, serves not to the individual but some idea of a whole, uh, the denial that people have when it comes to what is the American dream and how it can serve and the contradiction of the American aesthetic and what we aspire to be. You know, when you think about America, just the con America is such a contradiction of you know, love, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Negroes aren't even human beings. <laughs> you know, uh, just the, the contradiction of the values and the ideas of what it was created on and how it was actualized. Um, is uh, a part of that dichotomy of uh, what uh, the American aesthetic is all about. Will we ever continue to live up to the values that we espouse on paper? Um, and uh, adding the African-American family of uh, Willie Loman, the Lomans, just illuminates uh, the dysfunction, the denial, and the crushing... Um, nightmare that the American dream can be for him in that play. There's a, Josie, have you read Utopia for Realists yet? I bet you're Still bound to. not. I, I look at it, it's in the window of a bookshop near me. And I'm always like, yeah, that's for me, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, just one brick away. <laughs> oh, I'll liberate it, yeah. But it I, I, I just wonder, because it has that, at one point in Utopia for Realists, it, it says, you know, the, the country where the American dream is least likely to occur is America. Yeah. And oh, Cincinnati yeah. and Joseph Stiglitz, I think, has written about that as well. You well, know, this, this strange illusion. People, sorry, if you show people wealth distribution charts, so if yes. you show Americans the wealth distribution chart for America and for Sweden, they're like, that's us, and point to Sweden. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, so, no. guys. You know, that the, um, the top 13,000 families makes more than every other American. They make more than every other American combined. Just 13,000 families, uh, and it's, it's, it's crazy. I do find, uh, as somebody who sort of is coming to American culture and American politics as an outsider, I find every time I think I've got a handle on it, I'm then sort of shocked all over again in, in a way that, like, you know, it's a bit of stuff, British culture's probably the same, but, uh, it, you know, every time you think, okay, okay, I understand America now, and then you're like, oh, they also did that, or, oh, it's also owned by 13,000 yeah. people. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, but you think of, speaking of literature, that it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, yeah. you know. Uh, I always think of that Dickens line, there's such a, there's such a yin and yang, uh, there's, uh, there's such a duality to um, our humanity, right, that we all have, and we seem to just exacerbate that even more, you know? Uh, and it's never just a, a sort of a slow curve. We see it just in sharp, contrasting moments in history and time and actions 
even all at the same moment, you know. Uh, trying to avoid politics, but we ultimately come back to it in these troubled, crazy times. Barack Obama was who we aspired to be. And then we have to kind of bite our lips and go, Trump is who we are. You know? That's scary. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and I, I always try to say, you know, man, we need to, we really need to ignore Trump and talk to those people who believe in him and say, man, just hold my hand, you know? You don't have to believe that, you know? It's just, let me try to take you to some imperial, uh, empirical data that says you're wrong. And, 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 and let's not have a fight about it. It's, you know, that's water, that's not gin, you know? Just taste it, you know, and you're going to discover it. You know? And it's always, um, it's, you know, we need to look at that because sometimes, and that's, as an African-American, as an African-American, that happens culturally for us so much, and it comes from a place of ignorance. Uh, I say, I think of a movie, Sounder, um, Paul, uh, the actor in it, I'm having a senior moment, Paul was his first name, <laughs> and I'll let you go to Google and find out yeah. the last. Um, well, um, this is where often when we're in the studio, we so Trent is looking screen. up now, oh, yeah, and, and then there'll be a very Paul Winfield. Edit. Excuse me, Paul Winfield. Paul Winfield, oh, yes, Paul Winfield. oh, wonderful actor. <laughs> Starred with Cicely Tyson uh, and Little Kevin Hooks in Sounder, 1972, I think it is. Oh, yes. Wonderful movie, and it's a sharecropping family and he is unjustly taking into taken onto a chain gang and goes to prison he comes home and um it happens to be thanksgiving you know it's this wonderful scene you know of a family that has gone through so much and it's fighting to stay together and the biggest question he got on tour in 1972 was do black people celebrate thanksgiving oh. 1972 1997, I was in a studio doing the Gregory Hines show, and Gregory Hines, one of the great talents of the world, and he loved to kiss when he greeted people. He would kiss you, and, uh, and especially his kids. And so on the show, a sitcom, he would come on, hey, Maddie, and he kisses his kid. And a CBS executive, 1997, sitting around the table. They usually ask the actors to leave, and they say, okay, um, you know, uh, let's give notes. And before we left the table, a CBS executive says, wait, before we go, I just have one question for you. Now, um, don't take this the wrong way, which is always a signal. Oh, God. <laughs> take it the wrong way. Because don't take this the wrong way, but um, do black folks kiss their kids? What? Yeah, yes. Absolute question. I, I, I remember, and I left the room, I said, no, this dude is about to get his ass kicked. Gregory's, you know, Gregory is about to go off. You know, it would be so hard not to try and fuck with them a bit. Like you'd want to be like, "What's kissing?" Yeah, you know, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> oh my goodness, is that what I'm doing? Actually, I was, I was smelling him. Yeah. Um, and then you know, and you live through uh, the YouTube age now of seeing what mm -hmm. happens. Finally. You know, what happens, what we've experienced in traffic stops for generations as African-Americans, where the, the, the scariest moment for me in a police stop is when they say, driver's license and registration, right? Because you have to teach. We, in our community, have to teach our kids never reach for your wallet, ever. 
in America as a black man. Don't ever reach for your wallet. Either I have a tendency to put it on the dash before the cop gets up there and, uh, and try to get the, and have a registration in the wallet, you know. But, yeah. I don't what know. I, I'm so, and, and so I bring up all of that to say that's the intersection of that illuminates some of the variables of, of obstacle and uh, denial and um, that a Loman family in 1949 would have to deal with, that a black traveling salesman in New England has to deal with, the fact that he is lying to himself as Willie Loman saying, I'm doing great all these years when he isn't. And he expects so much out of his son um, because he wants greatness for him that he believes so much in the American dream because on paper it is beautiful. Black folks in America went to war, came to these European shores to fight the double V, victory at abroad and victory at home. Because maybe if we give our lives in the pursuit of democracy and to beat fascism, these white folks actually might treat us like human beings. That is the era, the illumination that having a black Loman family uh, in Death of a Salesman brings out. That was a long ass answer, wasn't it? Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Um, And so that's why the plays are still relevant today. Um, Whoever thought we would deal with McCarthyism again, um, which we're dealing with now. Uh, Whoever thought we would see kids separated from their families in America and put in cages. Right now, kids who broke no law except being... uh, Mexican or um, Hispanic. Um, And you know it's not about immigration because if it was about immigration, they would go to Boston and stop, you know, all the undocumented workers coming from Ireland at Logan Airport. You know, you go to any Irish pub on the eastern seaboard, you go, hey, man, when did you get in? Last night. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) the worst Irish accent ever. That's oh, what that laugh no. was. Yes, I see. That's good. The that is the hardest accent I think. I watched an episode of you Murder, Notice I got quiet. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about actors. And Donald Trump does this too. That that speech the other day when they're about to really fuck up, they get quiet. You know, it's like yes, you know, I got here last night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. When I try and do a Scottish accent, it's very quiet and very high. So it's like. Oh, yes, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Dominic West was on the... Uh, any Wire fans here? Um, and also, I have a real thing for English people who cannot do American accents, and I feel for Americans, because I'm like, there's plenty of good Americans. How is he managed to get... And that's well, a, like, we have that argument back and forth all the time, you know, but, uh, but now that I've worked in London, oh, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> I got a chance here, but... Um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. 
Oh, but so that, that bit about when you were talking about doing speeches, when he did that speech on the 4th of July, where the oh, auto yes. cue was... A, the, the bit where he mentions Frederick Douglass is a really amazing moment of his own tongue and throat trying to stop yes. him saying those words. He's like, this I, is I incredible. He's totally lost, as if his brain's yeah. going, why are you mentioning him? Yeah. But it's kind of like, going... You can see he's going... Fun. Fire that speechwriter. <laughs> Fire that speechwriter. You really uh, wanted that moment from Anchorman where he ends up, fuck you, San Diego. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't even want to talk about him. But no, we don't I've need to. Yes. Yes. We can yeah, live in an illusion for a while. That's why we, I do that with Brian Cox when we're in Australia. Stop reading about Brexit, you fucking idiot. We're 10,000 <laughs> miles away. We can go and hide in New Zealand. They'll never find us. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll disguise ourselves as Sam Neill's pigs. It'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> Uh, I've forgotten the question at this point. There is no right question. Oh, there's no question. Oh, good. We're, we're now moving to the Samuel Beckett phase. Oh, oh yes. Dee yes. Dee, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, where are we? <laughs> See, that's still one of my... I, I, I watched the version with Hugo Weaving and Richard Roxburgh from the... And, and that, that's a play that every production that I've seen is, is an absolute delight. And it's a, that English yeah. bit where we're talking about when you're allowed to laugh. When I last went to see it, because we were going to Samuel Beckett, so we, well, I think yeah. it must be very serious. very serious. And then there's the bit where they go, uh, shall we hang ourselves, because then we'll ejaculate, which is basically there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People go, well, I think that must be funny. Because that must be yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can laugh there, yeah. Do you know, I prefer that. I prefer, oh, well, I shan't laugh, to when people go to see, for example, Shakespeare, and they're like, <laughs> Uh, yes, like uh, you never, and you did not get that archaic Elizabethan joke, yes, you know, exactly. and the mustard was not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are like, mm, mm. oh, lovely, lovely, yes, yes. These rude mechanicals are so rude. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bottom. <laughs> now, that was my bad English accent. <laughs> But because it had the word bottom in it, you rather won them over. <laughs> but we promised we weren't going to talk oh, about that's Freud. What I was talking about. Oh, uh, speaking of bad accents, when I was on The Wire, so uh, I would make fun of Dominic West, uh, you know, because he... Rightfully so. From here, from London. And, you know, he had to do his American accent. And so I don't know why. So I would always, hello, governor. Hey, how are you? And he would say, and he would always ask me, what? Why do you make you, you have this rich baritone voice, but every time you do an English accent, you lose it and you make him a complete idiot. You know, he said, "Hello, governor. How are you? Hello, welcome to set, Mister West. Can I get you something?" <laughs> that was my worst <laughs> moment ever. <laughs> And when we didn't know what we were doing in The Wire, we got very quiet when we didn't know our lines. So uh, if, when you go back and watch The Wire, uh, Dominic West and I are sitting at a bar's bunk at McNulty, and it's like, yeah, because I, uh, I had the uh, case. And they're like, cut. Do you guys know your lines? No, we don't. <laughs> Books. So when well, you well that's oh yeah, go on, Josie, I'm you... just like please just tell me about the wire for hours. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> that is so wonderful. <laughs> I'm I have uh oh my problem is 
Even though my child is one, which is very old, I still have no functioning brain. So this is just a thrilling night out for me where I occasionally go, I agree. But I'm very embarrassed. But I, uh, it's, it's David Simon, the creator of the word. Did yes. You, when you were cast, did you read any of his novels? How do you feel about his writing? Yes, I read some of his stuff. Homicide <laughs> yeah. Life on the Street is one year of... Uh, with the homicide department at Baltimore that he had written about as a journalist. So I read that. Uh, that was very helpful. And he also said to us as we were developing the show or about to start to shoot the show, he said, what's going to be different about The Wire is the fact that it's not a television show. It's a visual novel. Oh, wow. You will not be in every chapter. I will develop characters early and you won't see them until later. You have to understand, and I'm trying to develop a world, but look at it like a book. Yeah. And, uh, I and think the richness that, of the and, world. And the richness of the world and the richness of the characters. And I think he really changed television because he was always telling television executives, you always want a beginning, middle, and end, and everyone wants everything wrapped up in a half an hour or in, a, in an hour, when your audience is made up of people who read, mm. you know, and they read novels, and they will let you develop a character, and there can be a sense of anthology about it, uh, and leading from one thing to another. And uh, that's what he created, and he showed the television world that uh, television audiences would appreciate a show the way they appreciate books. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of... Like the um, the unjust universe of a really big Russian novel, it is so mm. like hard to bear all of it, and everyone's lives struggling in that way. Um, but I, I suppose I'd not thought of it in those terms. But of course, yeah. And and he, uh, it has now become a redundant sort of mantra. But you know, uh, the wire is the Kinsian, you know. But it is. But it is. It absolutely is. And. Uh, Every time, just like a good book, you, when you go back and watch it, uh, you see something and notice something that you hadn't noticed before. And I really appreciate that about his writing, and it improved our acting because it allowed us the breath and the time to develop character, uh, not only in a scene, um, but you know, even further down the arc of the, uh, the storyline. And he always held the storyline away from us. We didn't get scripts until the last minute. Oh, that so must have was, been brutal, though. Oh, it Just was to be like, Not them. Yeah. Not that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the time, you know. And it, and it it led to there was uh, the you know the Wednesday night that before we started shooting, um, a phone calls amongst the cast. Uh, you know, the scripts would be distributed. You know, an hour later, we're all calling each other. Where did you see that? Oh, I can't believe we're going there. I hate that part. You know, <laughs> you know? so um, it it really he really was trying to do a visual novel. But would you, when the script arrived, just turn straight to the last page and go, I've not been killed. I'm yeah. definitely still in this. It's okay. <laughs> no, I actually wanted to. I, you know, I wanted to go out. You know, I, listen, a TV show is going to last maybe three, five years. You know, so I made it to the third year. I was like, ah, if they take me out. But I wanted, like, a really spectacular death, you know. Your character um, was too powerful. Uh, oh, well, thank you. Take it out. <laughs> Put my glasses on to that. <laughs> 
Um, the only one I didn't like was that one where you went undercover as an Englishman. I found that very, <laughs> yeah. very unconvincing. Hello, Gabriel. Hello, I come to sell you some oh, drugs and that. Right. Yeah, I got it in my Two blokes hat. walking through Trafalgar Square. One of them said, "What would you do with a bird shot on your head?" And the other one said, "I'll never go out with her again." Hello, I'll take a point, please. <laughs> um, for people listening at home, an English man just came in and took the microphone. <laughs> And what do you love to read now? What kind of things have you I, read? Um, I, uh, I, I love thrillers. I, I, what did they call them? I guess it's a thriller. I love Walter Mosley. Uh, Walter Mosley, I, I love his books. Uh, uh, the Easy Rollin novels of, um, of uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, Little Yellow Dog, The Red Scare. Uh, I love his. And... Uh, I sit with a nice scotch because Easy drinks scotch, you know? And, um, and I feel like I'm the coolest, baddest private detective in Los Angeles. There is something like that. It's, uh, something with that, isn't it? When you, when you really love, like, uh, a, a book or, like, a series of books, you do kind of want to, like, oh, cosplay absolutely. a little bit. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, man. I get so drunk drink, uh, <laughs> reading those books, man, because it's just like, I'm just, I'm drinking with easy. And, um, and it also, uh, one of my other favorites uh, I go back to, which is uh, Caleb Carr, who was a historical, military historical writer, uh, American, uh, who wrote The Alienist, which is one of my favorite books. I mean, because of the writing. I like this because of the writing. Oh, God. It's at the turn of the century, New York, turn of the century. Um, and Caleb, because he was a historical, uh, he, the detail, you know, I'm riding, I'm riding in a handsome cab heading east, looking up at the 6th Avenue L train as it spews the smoke and soot into the air as the rain comes down and gets the tweed seats of the handsome cab wet under my... I'm like, wow, man, they had tweed seats in handsome cabs in 1895, and, you know, in New York. I love that sort of stuff. And so, you know, um, it's a wonderful... And the alienist is what you called someone at the beginning of psychiatry, before it had a name, someone who was considered mentally ill was alien of their mind. And so doctors who were doing this new, um, this new study of psychiatry, um, they were called alienists. And uh, it's the turn of the century in New York. Teddy Roosevelt is the uh, police commissioner, and he puts together two detectives uh, with this alienist who puts together a profile of the serial killer who's killing uh, little boy prostitutes in the five points. It's really a horrific image. And uh, I can't read, I, I can't realize, I, I'm realizing now, I'm like, oh man, I love that book. <laughs> you know, the serial killing of little boys. Oh my God. Little boy prostitutes. Oh, transvestite prostitutes. I'm sorry. I, I don't love that part about it. Um, 
Don't bit. worry, this is exactly what happened last time we recorded in this room. Uh, one of our guests went, oh, I just love documentaries all about plane crashes. One of my favourites, and then eventually you could see in her face going, I'm talking about how much I love seeing... That, oh, people died, didn't they? Yeah. Can we cut that bit? Yeah. So, <laughs> you can keep it. I, I love the alienist. Um, well, what great. we'll do is we'll, we'll cut it up for this, then in a future podcast we'll go, well, I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> that Wendell Pierce is macabre. No, I, you know, I mean, you love the writing, and I, I, I love, but I also, I also love um, historical, yes, uh, historical writings. We had um, a writer on uh, the show, Kate Grenville, mm. and she wrote this book, The Secret River, which is about uh, the early period of kind of uh, the colonization of um, around Sydney in Australia, mm. and of people being uh, transported from Britain. And I'd, I think I'd never really read historical fiction prior to reading her work. And mm. what was so stunning was the level of detail and the level of research was so transportative and so educational yeah. without ever losing how like magnificent the writing was. Yeah. And so you finish it and you're like, I know that time and place now. Yeah. And I understand, you know, the context of the struggles of that time and place. And it's so exciting. That's, that's why, you know, sort of like the neutral idea of colorblind casting or whatever. Sure. Uh, the neutral idea of a conceit that you put on a play, I'm kind of against. I'm like, if you're going to go, go hard. Because the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes. You know, yeah, because it's it can like be you real. See it, yeah, you know, it's so real. It makes it real for you, and you and you are empathetic and sympathetic mm -hmm. to what the characters are going through in that particular novel book. That you understand that you know there, but by the grace of God, go I. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah. so that's that's uh, you know you having that uh, connection with that novel. Um, it's it's just a part of it, and I also realize now it just as a um, as a rebuttal to my macabre oh i love murder mysteries and uh people do love murder mysteries it's a it's, it's um I, I it's a, a part of trying to understand you know who did it i guess but uh it's what happens in the alienist is so vivid and so real uh that if those of you who haven't read it who will read it uh please understand that uh that sort of vividness of it is not what is exciting me. It is the uh, it is the police work to try to stop the killer that excites me. Like Easy Rollins as a private detective, um, and then when it comes to historical stuff, I love uh, Parting the Waters. One of my favorite books is Parting the Waters by uh, Taylor Branch, which is 1955 to 1968, the Civil Rights Movement, and you realize that it wasn't by chance. It was very smart, ordinary people putting together very strategic ways of battling a system that was violent and oppressive and dangerous and murderous. Um, and it, it, you, you see their brilliance in their uh, everyday approach to it. And you see the inside fighting um, when, uh, you know, Rosa Parks wasn't by chance been doing it, it forever, try, and she knew it, it fell in her lap. She was like, oh, all of a sudden. They had done it just weeks before, months before. And the driver said, all right, just sit there, be cool. No, I'll take you. You know, it's like, no, I'm trying to get arrested, you know, to start this movement. Um, we actually had a, uh, when the Haitian Revolution happened, it was 40 years before the civil 
uh, war in, in, in the United States. And so the, the Haitian population moved to New Orleans. And we actually had an 1847, 1848 streetcar boycott done there. Um, you know, this is before slavery even ended. Um, and it was a 1930 uh, bus boycott in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So the idea of, the, you know, all of these, uh, these strategies were present in the minds of activists, you know, so that at any point they can exercise that strategy that was talked about in a multitude of uh, strategy meetings uh, with these young, you know, activists. And so you had Rosa Parks sit down and it, 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 this begins the book of Parting the, Water, Parting the Waters. Um, and it actually takes, you know, she is arrested. they like, this is the opportunity. They all are gathered um, at the church to now plan the strategy of the boycott. Uh, and the infighting begins where the reverends are fighting E.D. Nixon, who was a black businessman, you know, in Montgomery, who said, this is the way it should go. I should lead it, and they're like, no, we should have the moral high ground, so the reverends should lead it, and they're going, E.D. Nixon is like, no, we're out there battling. Either you guys can't be as tough as we can be because we're secular. Um, and they said, no, we should lead it. And a young Martin Luther King, 26 at the time, walks in, and he's the new preacher at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church by chance. And E.D. Nixon, being the shrewd businessman, and strategist and politician and negotiator says, okay, Rev, I'll let you guys lead it, but we want the young boy to lead it, Martin Luther King. And they're like, no, 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 that's the only way we'll let the reverence lead it. So he goes away, you have an hour, write the speech, we're calling everybody back to the church to start the Montgomery bus boycott. He goes back, he writes, he's with his right-hand man, Reverend Abernathy, and they're driving back to the church for the speech, and they realize they're going to be late. They get caught in a traffic jam. Hyde Park on a Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, thank you. Um, and there's a traffic jam, and, they, and they realize, we have to get to the church. I'm about to give the speech. So he stops someone as he's walking by, and uh, Martin Luther King says, excuse me, excuse me, I, I, I'm the Reverend Martin Luther King. I'm supposed to give the speech at Dexter Avenue. What's happened up ahead? Because this traffic is stopping me. I'm going to be late. And the person turns and says, oh, no, Rev, this is the closest you're going to get. This, these are all the people going to the church. And you can't get any closer than this. And he turns to Reverend Abernathy and he goes, wow, this might turn into something. And that's the beginning of Parting the Waters. And uh, so that's why I like historical novels like that. Oh, even as fiction, you're like, please. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I was, it made me think of two things. Because firstly, what you were saying about kind of America being this kind of contradiction at all times. And yeah, you've got people bringing over the ideas of the Haitian Revolution. Yes. Being like, we've just done this. You know, we've just had this incredible kind of fight. Let's do this. And then, yeah, what's still going on for another, God, for so yeah, much longer? Yeah, uh, 200 years. And, 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 and to also understand the role of culture in that, um, the idea of, I can take you in New Orleans to the very hallowed ground, the very place where jazz was created, Congo Square, Africans taken out of their shackles 
allowed on Sunday to drum and play the bambula, right, and dance the bambula. It is literally in the neighborhood of where free people of color, Haitians, have come. So they're trading ideas of insurrection. Go back to your plantations if you get and rise up. They're, tra they're trading political ideas and all of that, and it's back and forth, this back and forth, and this sort of amalgam of ideas and improvisation and all, while they're playing and trading goods and playing the bambula, and dancing. It literally is manifested in the music because you have this African six and they look at their European ca captors and hear the brass of the umpapa, umpapa, and, and they found their creative freedom before their physical freedom in saying, how can I have that commentary, that back and forth? And jazz is born. It's literally the spot where jazz was born, where they took the, the, the brass music of the European captures and the African rhythm that they had come there with in the midst of the discussion of insurrection with these freed Haitians saying, be expressive of who you are, demand your freedom, demand your liberty. And all of that came out within the creation of that music where the individual is celebrated with the improvisation. Yeah. At the same time, honoring the form of a song the chords, that's what jazz is. And ultimately, it is what is best about America. Freedom within form. Being able to be a free individual and be a nation of laws where you can honor the law and still be free and have individual rights. And that's what jazz is. You are free to play whatever you want and improvise. We have a finite amount of notes but an infinite amount of combination of those notes. Play an improvised solo, but within the constraints of the structure of this song. And then have a dialogue, trading of fours. The drummer plays four bars, and the trumpet player plays another four. And then they play trade two and two, and then one and one, and then come back together to play the melody of the song. The whole idea of the American conceit is in jazz, born from America's original sin of slavery and illuminating what true liberty and freedom would be about, what the American idea is supposed to be about, true individual freedom while we can still honor and be a nation of laws. Yeah. And I think that's the perfect time. We'll, we'll, and we've run out of time. And, um, thank you very much for, for joining us. And uh, there was a lot more that we'd, I'd love to have talked about. And, uh, um, and I look forward to seeing you all on the West End at the Piccadilly Theatre, October 24th through January 4th, Wendell Pierce and the American classic, Death of a Salesman. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Remember, patreon.com slash bookshambles. 
uh, to support the show as little as a dollar a month. If you can afford a dollar a month and enjoy the podcast, we would greatly appreciate your support there. Uh, not only would you get an extended edition of this episode, uh, for example, we gave away a few free tickets to come to this live recording to our Patreon supporters. So there are lots of those sorts of benefits for Patreons. Make sure you get along to the Piccadilly Theatre in the West End to see Wendell in Death of a Salesman when it returns October through January. Salesmanwestend.com. Robinint.com for all of Robin's upcoming live dates. Josielong.com for all of Josie's upcoming live dates. Cosmicshambles.com for all of our upcoming live shows and festivals. There was something else I had to mention as well, but I can't remember it right now, and this episode has to be mixed down. So stay tuned next week to find out what bit of admin I have forgotten. So until next week, have a great week, be good to each other, and we will see you then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.